0: Hello, everyone. You're in it. This is Dave Birnbaum. And I'm looking at a chart that shows the historical supply of Bitcoin on exchanges. And it's plummeting in recent months. What does this mean? Well, it means that people who own Bitcoin are moving their savings off of exchanges and into private wallets, taking custody of their money. This is very good news, guys, because it means Bitcoin is able to fulfill one of its original promises, which is that people can take control of their own money without intermediaries. Swan Bitcoin is how I buy Bitcoin for many reasons, not the least of which is because they're cheap, but also because Swan Bitcoin allows you to take custody of your funds whenever you want. You can set it up so that your Bitcoins automatically move to your private wallet after a threshold is reached or You can click a button any time and just withdraw it. So this lowers the risk that something could happen to your funds while they're out of your custody. It's really, really great, and it shows that the Swan team's heart is in the right place and that they've designed their platform to make good on the vision of what Bitcoin is supposed to be. So go to swanbitcoin.com slash init. That's swanbitcoin.com slash init and set it up in less than five minutes. There's a new partner to announce today, and that's Smart Haptics, the premier conference of the haptics industry. Smart Haptics is taking place this December 1st and 2nd in beautiful San Diego, but also online. So it's going to be a hybrid event. And I went to this event in 2020 when it was 100% online, and the organizers did a great job of creating that online event. You know how online conferences can be hit or miss, well, this one was a hit last year. And this year they're going hybrid. So you'll be able to participate if you come down to San Diego or if you just attend online. And you get a discount code. So go to smart haptics.com. So smart and then the little dash haptics.com. And when you register, use the discount code haptics2021 in it. So it's all one word, the word haptics. Then the year 2021, and then in it. Haptics 2021 in it for 10% off the price of registration. Adam Molnar is co founder of Neurable, a leading brain computer interface or BCI company, and an inductee of Forbes 30 Under 30 for consumer technology. Neurable creates consumer grade brain computer interfaces, and their latest product is called N10, which is a pair of headphones that incorporates sensors that can detect brain activity. This is used to estimate the level of your attention and focus and help you keep from getting distracted, which is a worthy mission if there ever was one in today's day and age. So we talk about the winding road that Adam took before eventually starting Neurable, which is a fascinating story in itself. We talk about the motivation and values of Neurable, part of which is a strong commitment to allowing users to use their brain data to improve their own lives rather than selling it on to marketers. And we walk through some of the possibilities for how brain-computer interfaces will evolve in the coming years. So here we go, Adam Molnar. All right, I think we're good. Ooh, look at that space. Cool, man. Thanks. Thanks for being here. I appreciate that. Actually, I recognize your shelf because I spoke to Ramsey in front of that shelf, maybe on the other side. <laughs> of it. Well, thanks for taking the time today and um, of course, really excited to talk to you. Could you tell us a little bit about your background and what brought you to where you are today?
1: Yeah, my, my background's in entrepreneurship and behavioral research. I got my start at the University of Michigan and then um, had a route into behavioral consulting that brought me down a different route of entrepreneurship that took me down a series of rabbit holes that landed me into the world of neurotechnology, which is where I've been for the past six years.
0: And you have a fascinating background, actually. You come from a first-generation immigrant family. you had entrepreneurs in your family. So can you tell us that story?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And thank you. (laughs) My dad is originally from Hungary. He actually escaped when he was 19 years old, managed to sneak across the border, find his way into Italy through Yugoslavia, sneaking past Border Patrol, and then hitchhiked his way to get to Paris and then lived there for two years, came to the U.S. as a political refugee and just started hustling. He, he was definitely an entrepreneur from the beginning. His first job was a bike messenger, but his craziest pursuit, I think, was he would take weekly, and, and this is a man that did not go to college, didn't even go to high school. He went to trade school. He learned how to repair typewriters. Hmm. He would take this all the savings that he had, get a truck, drive the truck down to Mexico from New York, buy a ton of different types of furniture or pottery and Things that he could then drive back up to New York the same week and sell at a flea market. And he would do that weekly for, I don't know how many years. And he he realized at some point that 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 was unsustainable. And actually, I think it was because one day, one of his trucks got stolen. Mm. And then he made a series of transitions. But then my mom, she she also comes from a, a little bit of a rough background in Israel and After she finished the army, she came to the U.S. And actually, all of her stuff got stolen. So her passport, the little money that she had, she was literally just stranded here. And she just decided to stay in New York. And that's where she met my dad. And that's where I come from. But the two of them started a business together, a, a local real estate office. And that's all the exposure I had, professionally speaking.
0: Wow. And then you went and you studied environmental studies and that took you back to Israel. Well, not back to Israel, but but to So Israel. it was actually
1: inspired by the, so I had taken a gap here in between my high school and undergraduate studies. Mm-hmm. I'd been part of this youth movement my entire life that was very focused on social justice. And I knew that I didn't want to do an immediate jump right into academics. I wanted to take some time off and see the world. And I knew this really awesome program that uh, I would be with people from around the world. And we lived and, and worked in Israel together, largely facilitating relationships between Palestine and, and Israel, especially amongst the youth. Mm-hmm. And we did that through a variety of ways, both through art, through conversation, and through like just general exposure. Uh, and, and that was a really enlightening year where I, I got to see some really cool technology in Israel that was focused in green technology. So that was kind of like the initial inspiration that mm-hmm. put me into this environmental focus as I, as I started my studies. But then as I got started, I found out that there's this whole realm of study in behavior.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And that, that really landed with me. And then I ended up doing my undergraduate degree in behavior and entrepreneurship,
2: mm-hmm.
1: ultimately doing behavioral consulting. And then starting uh, or trying to start uh, (laughs) my first venture that was trying to take advantage of some of the insights I had from working in behavior.
0: What's interesting about that too is maybe this was your angle, I don't know, but um, when we talk about environmental issues, it does come down to behavior. So, you know, there's a lot of studying we can do about the effects of humans on the environment, but ultimately to do anything about it, you need to be able to build systems that affect human behavior. Is that kind of how you were approaching that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. When it, when it comes to sustainability, there's the concept of adaptive interventions and mitigation interventions. So mm-hmm. in terms of what we were working on, we didn't want to just creating better dams to prevent against rising water is environmental work that needs to happen. Mm-hmm. But the area of work that I wanted to focus on is how can we help? mitigate these problems how do we start to curb what's going on so that we prevent these from happening so yeah so I, behavior is like one of the largest untapped areas for this and actually little known fact is that utility companies have carbon credits that can be allocated to companies that focus on behavior change so that there there is a lot in this it's just not as utilized because people like the easier fixes the let me just create a smarter thermostat or a more efficient car. You know, the more efficient car then leads to more driving.
0: <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> yeah. So then, so then you wind up uh, starting an app, and that was your first encounter with true entrepreneurship. And you had a pretty rough time of it, if, if I recall from our conversation.
1: I mean, yes, rough in that had an unfortunate outcome, but not rough in terms of the experience. I actually had a venture before that. It, it was, but it wasn't as serious. Like the, the, the app
0: was my first serious. Venture. Okay. But when were you homeless?
1: That was when I made the jump from deciding to go from doing consulting. Uh, when I was living in New York, I decided to move back to Michigan where I found the the senior in computer science that was super on board with this vision that I had regarding this app that I'll describe in a moment. Yeah. But he and I were an extremely good fit. So I figured that I could save a lot more money and have a lot more meaningful development if I moved back to Ann Arbor where I had finished my studies Mm -hmm. and work with this computer scientist to build out this app and start the business there and then ultimately move it to another part of the country. Mm -hmm. And what happened was I had no money. I had very little savings. And also when you have a college town, the living situation is very oriented around the calendar year. So September 1st, that's when everyone starts their leases. And then there's not much wiggle room in between.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. So I had found, fortunately, this was already in like October, November, a sublet that was willing to put me in this house and I could live there relatively inexpensively and have access to the the campus and my my co-founder. But (laughs) I had been planning this for months and then I, I finally get there and she goes, yeah, I'm so, this is the landlord. She goes, yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, that unit I was talking about is actually not available. It's still under construction. I'm so sorry, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, wow, you are evil. Like, I just moved halfway across the country with nowhere to stay. You said that I would be okay. Why didn't you tell me like three weeks ago or two weeks ago, or even just two days ago? Yeah. Uh, why would you wait for me to come here? Anyways. So that was pretty cruel. But fortunately, I had still some friends who were around the area and doing master's work or whatnot. And I I slept on my friend's couch for two weeks until this landlord who royally screwed me over was like, listen, I know it's not an ideal solution, but I have this property that's also under construction, but relatively more done that I'll I'll put, (laughs) I swear to God, she goes, I'll put you in there. Uh, I won't charge you any rent because I feel so bad. And I was like, wait no rent (laughs) as someone who's starting their their first real venture with limited savings working three jobs that was very attractive until i got there and it was two and a half miles away from campus which by general standards isn't extremely far but when you don't drive and you're dealing with michigan winter that is truly truly awful yeah so i was walking so it was this (laughs) apartment two and a half miles away from campus That still had exposed wooden beams and insulation in the walls, had obviously no Wi-Fi, had no furniture. I was sleeping on an air mattress for about four months. And that was pretty dark. I mean, like, uh, especially when you have low moments in your startup, to have your surroundings and also being alone is especially... Challenging. I would like lean up against one of the walls of the apartment that was closest to the gas station and a cafe that was like around the corner, Mm -hmm. because it was just by the highway, and I was able to steal the Wi-Fi from there. But for the most part, I would spend like 15 hours a day on campus sneaking into the library behind people because I didn't my I didn't have a car to get in and have access. But anyway, so that, that's my little homeless ring, which is kind of interesting because my, my dad was like real, real homeless in Paris, living and sleeping under a bridge for several weeks until he found a better logic situation. Anyways, but yeah, so that was the lead up to my, my first venture.
0: That's amazing. And so, and this was the, you called it Tinder for bartering or is that before?
1: Uh, no, th- this is during that. So, yeah, the company was called BarterX. It was this idea that what's valuable to me is not what's necessarily valuable to you or even as much. Yeah. So, the idea was that let's say there were that Bobby has a basketball, Timmy has a book, and I have a radio. I want Bobby's basketball, but Bobby wants Timmy's book, and Timmy wants my radio. What our app did, and we had an algorithm that was powering it with a Tinder like user experience. Mm-hmm was you could swipe back and forth for products and services that were uploaded by people in your area. And our algorithm would coordinate series of trades that allowed it so that you were getting what you wanted without having to necessarily do a one-to-one trade for what was available.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. And
1: that was the idea of this value paradigm, that there's a value differential.
0: Yeah. Well, it's interesting because you just described one of the qualities of money, right? That's what money is for. When you have something to offer, somebody else has something to offer, you don't, want to trade directly you need other third parties involved you need some kind of mediation there and that's what money does so it's interesting because i imagine i mean at some level you had to build a model of value that was sort of analogous to money at some point right
1: that was actually like a very dedicated threat that we did not want to introduce a virtual currency because that went against what we were trying to build so It was really embodying the three R's of sustainability, which are reduce, reuse, recycle. And you're supposed to follow those in that order. And what we were trying to do is do all three of those things. How do we make it so that you're not having to generate anything new, but you're able to provide it to someone who had the need? Mm -hmm. So like the, the value is subjective to who is the user. And that's how it works in a special way that money doesn't quite capture because there's still an objective value to, the, to that cash.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: It also, I think it changes the paradigm from like, how can I get the best bang for my buck as opposed to what do I truly need or what can I truly part with? I uh, which I think is like a, a nuanced shift that you don't have when money's involved
0: so what was the story of that app what happened so uh
1: we had our alpha app built and we had the like quote-unquote perfect launch community i had subscribed the local sustainability organizations groups clubs there was a cooperative housing situation that had several hundred members and ann arbor is generally an extremely forward-leaning city that was open to this kind of idea that was kind of inspired by what Facebook had done uh, when they were just starting out of Harvard, where they literally map out the universities that they wanted to target and figured out how to triangulate communities in a way so it would apply pressure to any community that hadn't adopted yet. It. So it's like if the people to the left of me and the people to the right of me are doing this, it adds further pressure for the people in the middle to adopt it. And that's kind of the pathway that we set up for ourselves and had put on as our early subscribers to the service. And uh, we were going to launch this all on a Monday, had the app ready to go, the nice fresh alpha build that was still rough, but definitely worked. <laughs> and on Thursday, my co-founder was an international student, spoke with an immigration lawyer. And on Friday, he texts me a very simple and ominous message saying, hey, man, we got to talk. Oh, shit. So I meet with him on Friday and he goes, hey, so I spoke with this lawyer and she mentioned that if we don't go through X, Y, and Z paperwork, it could affect my visa status. And he was generally a a cautionary uh, individual. He was super risk averse, which probably wasn't like the the best quality you necessarily want from your founder. It it can definitely be valuable, but not when you're in such an early stage where there is so much risk. And uh, he goes, so I'm going to walk. And I'm happy to help you get set up with another founder, but I can't launch this under my name or with my code. And that was really shitty because we had demo day coming up in two months where we were supposed to show and pitch to all these investors to actually mature the company from, you know, university incubator into an actual real company.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And that was about a year and a half of my life just uh, shut down overnight. It was still very
0: rough. Yeah. Wow. That's rough because uh, it's like your baby. You spent so much time on it and you're about to put it out there. I know I asked you this before, but is there... Absolutely baby. Yeah. Is there any way to like open source that or somehow just let someone else run with the idea at this point? I've
1: always thought that if I found someone who's really into the idea that I would gladly advise Mm. and I think I can... Much more value advised because I've been through several rounds of funding. I've raised over 15 million dollars. I know what it what a business looks like as opposed to where I was back then, where I was just like big green with big eyes and yeah, wanting to cause some positive change. So if there's anyone that ever wants to take that on, let me know and I'm happy to take you through all of the knowledge I'd accumulated in terms of planning it, the user design behind it all. I'm sure I even have like the wireframes somewhere. <laughs>
0: All right, so the next steps, you went to this university incubator. What happened? Yeah, so
1: there's that, that adage of right of one door closes, two door open. Yeah. And that's very much what happened, which is that the incubator program that my company was already in, the director of the program, who was royally swamped, asked me if I wanted to come on as program coordinator. So not only was I able to instantly have another job, which I very much needed <laughs> to literally just feed myself, but I also was able to then work with other companies and do so in a way that uh, was meaningful to me, mm-hmm. helping other people grow and be able to be a part of the many different types of teams
2: mm-hmm.
1: from very different types of backgrounds. So I, I did that and I put myself out there and I worked really hard. And that was one of the most valuable things that could have ever happened to me because that's how I got involved in my current company.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: That in this cohort of 23 startups, the second cohort, the best company by far was just this one guy who had what's the word I like to use? Not a gaggle, but basically had like, like an entourage? A, a, yeah, like a flock of thirsty PhDs, MBAs, computer scientists who were like, How do we get involved in bed with you, Ramsey's? And Ramsey's is this final year neuroscience PhD. Who had generated this really cool IP that allowed him at this stage to control this Lego Mindstorm or wheelchair using brain activity? Mm-hmm. And I had been advising Randy's throughout the entire cohort, and I remember at one point I was working late. And he was working late with his his groupies, <laughs> his flock of like wanting to be involved with the neuroble individuals. I remember leaving the building, and he goes, "Hey, Adam!" Like. You should just join us. And I was like laughing. And I'm like, listen, Manzies, just don't forget the little people when you're all big and successful. Fast forward to a demo day. And a little bit after that, I had already started working on the next cohort in the incubator. And I was a little bit at a loss. I I didn't know what I wanted to do. I'd just been dumped. So I was like, do I want to stay in Ann Arbor and continue working this incubator or do I start another venture? Do I move back to New York City, where my best friends, family, all, all everything that I grew up with is? Do I go abroad? I, I was contemplating taking a position with Techstar South Africa, which would have been really cool. <laughs> but I I remembered that Ramsey's had said if you wanted to join, you should. So I, I was in this like pretty dark place, and I sent him a message. I was, you know I'm like still dealing with the loss of my own company. Yeah. Say, like, hey, Ramseys, uh, you once said in passing to join your company, to join Nurable. I don't know if you were kidding or not, but if you were serious, like, I know that I can seriously be the most valuable person. Uh, Here's my resume. Here's everything that I think Neurable is missing right now. This is what I think I can do for you. And somewhat atypical, once you know Ramseys, is he's not great with email. But I got an email response from him very quickly, which was very out of character for me. And it was short and brief. He was at South by Southwest in 2016 at this point. He goes, yeah, the bottom line is I want you on the team. Uh, I get back this weekend. Let's talk on Monday. I, I was like elated. I was like losing my mind. I was like this, is like, this is the chance to be a part of really something special to really put my fingerprint on the world, in my, in my opinion,
2: mm-hmm.
1: because of the opportunity of what this kind of technology can do. And I remember I was at the gym on Sunday, and I had actually bumped into Ramsey's in the hallway there. And he he was in a rush, and he goes, hey, man, like, listen, the bottom line is you're going to be on this team. We can talk about logistics. We should have this formal talk tomorrow, but I want you on this team. And uh, I started crying in the middle of this gym. I started to break down. It was uh, a very emotional moment for me.
0: You said once that you were the odd duck because he had these other people that were like CS people. What was that connection? Like, what did he see? And like, how did you communicate what you could contribute?
1: Yeah, I later asked him, I was like, brains what do you want from me? Like, you have an MBA student with all of this years of experience and organization and operations. And you have this savant engineer who can take a concept to the next level. And you're obviously this extremely forward-thinking, innovative scientist. Uh, what do you want from me? And he goes, Adam, you're my people person. You're going to make sure that this is the company that people want to work at. Mm. And internally, I, I was like, absolutely, that's, that's something I can do. And I also knew that I, I wanted to take over the business, um, which eventually did happen. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so that's uh, how he saw me fit in his architecture of the neuroble the team. This is the, then became the founders.
0: So what is Neurable?
1: Neurable is a company that makes wearable neurotechnology devices. So we started with integrating EEG sensors into Mm -hmm. virtual reality. And that was partly because when immersive technology became super hot in 2016 and is more and more a part of life, I, I truly believe it's the next computing platform that we had personal computers and From there, we went to smartphones that the next shift is into immersive. And like those three computing systems, they had relatively clunky interaction modalities of how we communicate with the computer or the technology, rather, where with the personal computer before it was a personal computer, we had computers that were the size of warehouses that were fed with punch cards. And that required an extremely specialized type of knowledge in order to operate. And it wasn't until the keyboard and mouse and GUI interface, that the technology became more democratized, that it became more accessible to lay people. And we see something very similar happen with smartphone technology, where it starts with much more complicated interfaces and very inaccessible price points until Apple comes and makes the capacitive touchscreen the standard. still expensive, but it really made it so that anyone could interface with this new medium. And we saw the same thing happening with immersive and continuing to happen with immersive. So somewhat with virtual reality, especially so with augmented reality, where we'll have all of these traditional input methods, but then we'll have more. We'll have voice, we'll have gesture, but what we really need is unrestricted, hands-free control. Mm -hmm. So that's what landed our thesis. We raised our first round of money building this virtual reality integration. We had this super amazing demo that we showcased at this Awesome conference called SIGGRAPH that's 3D graphics and interactions in 2017.
0: It's right behind you, right? Isn't that it? Uh, <laughs> yeah. The, yeah. It, yeah. For, for people can't see this, but um, there, there, it went around the media, so I think a lot more people will recognize that than even remember your company's name because it was everywhere. So it's like this blue head here <laughs> with these blue circles all over it. I just I remember seeing that all over the place at the time.
1: I still see people to this day using our assets without attribution. It's like the stereotypical futuristic VR image. Yeah. And that that's totally what happened. We got the cover of the New York Times and all of this other awesome press and were able to meet with every investor, every OEM we could ever think of and was on top of the world until we weren't, until we got this question, two words. So what? We created this awesome demo literally a demo that you can control with your mind yeah but it wasn't a practical product it wasn't solving a critical need it wasn't the hallmark of in my opinion what a startup should be built around yeah revolutionary from a technologist perspective yeah but it wasn't necessarily a consumer perspective or the end user perspective
0: yeah so you got this question so what could you describe like what was it like to be in a room what were there design innovation Brainstorm sessions where you're just like, okay, we have this amazing piece of technology. The world is our oyster. What do we do with it? Like, how did you go about solving that problem and then arriving at the headphones?
1: I think floundering is a little bit mean to the company because we did a lot of really good things. And if we hadn't done what we did, you wouldn't be the leaders in where we are right now. Mm -hmm. Like it allowed us to build the name and it allowed us to generate the critical insights that I think will allow for our next product to really hit.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: But we essentially spent a lot of time trying to make it work. Mm. And what happens in doing that is you then naturally are generating customer discovery. You're generating where are the missing needs of why your product isn't landing. And those are some of the critical foundations that we needed to set in order to figure out how to make consumer BCI a thing, consumer brain computer interface technology, because there is so much missing and there was so much innovation that had to be built in order to get to that point and even a lot more to get to where we are right now.
0: Yeah. So you ha- you're you saying that you tried and tried with the head mounted uh, sensors, Right. But then, um, I mean, part of that is probably just that VR wasn't ready. Right. I mean. Yeah. Part of it is that
1: we caught it at its peak and then we we're also writing it down. Right? Yeah, yeah. In 2016 it's, it had its record investments, but then you had all of these virtual reality companies, companies that had st- game studios that had raised a hundred million dollars starting not to be able to show anything for it. Yeah. So here we are with essentially having made our bed in virtual reality because we didn't have the resources to create a brand new form factor. Right. So we were trying to make of whatever we had. And it's similar to how we found our footing, which is in 2018, virtual reality started to really get its footing in training. Mm -hmm. And then that allowed us to follow it and get a lot of customer discovery and training. And that then helped a lot inform what would be the best, product and it's not necessarily one that's hands-free control right now that will come that's going to be a killer interface that's going to be killer interaction but how do we make a killer business and that in our opinion comes down to understanding the end users idea of cognitive analytics
0: yeah so n10 how did you conceive of n10 and what is it
1: yeah so n10 it comes from the spanish word entender. my (laughs) co-founder ramses is from mexico so it's a little bit of an homage to his roots and where he and his family come from. The idea of these headphones is: what is a device that people use day to day? They use it sedentary in a somewhat controlled way. So it's not like you're running around with it. It's not like you're jumping up and down. Which neurotechnology is still a nascent technology. There's still a lot, a lot of limitations. Mm-hmm. And then how do we think about what would be acceptable? What do people need? What is a relative price point? What are all of these things that come together? And headphones was the natural evolution.
0: It's obvious. Thank God there are headphones.
1: <laughs> well, no, it's just like you just- you say it's obvious, but right. But it, it wasn't necessarily obvious. And I'll, I'll tell you why it's not necessarily obvious to the neurotechnologists. Okay. It's not obvious because- when you are measuring brain activity, data that comes from the brain, you don't necessarily want to confine yourself to just the areas around the ear. Mm-hmm. You want full heads coverage. You want to use wet sensors. You want to do all of these different things that are counterintuitive to what is a successful consumer product. Mm-hmm. What we had to do, and fortunately, what we had was this really great innovation that came from. Francis' doctoral work, but then also these years of development of creating means of making research grade systems usable to end users.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So we have technology that allows us to make the most sense from data from around the ears to actually make it usable. So to the neurotechnologist, the headphones is like, yeah, that's a super weird concept because you're not getting the ideal, necessarily, uh, areas of the, of the head. Mm-hmm. But for us, Because we are able to invest and build these kind of developments, it then became the obvious form factor. Mm -hmm. And then there's the other thing, which is we make our jobs even harder, which is we don't use these hard sensors. We don't use spikes that go through hair, which you'll see other consumer BCI devices do. And they do that because it's very hard to get a good signal. And hair is a key culprit in that. Mm what we do is we've woven these novel silver silver chloride fabric sensors into the actual cups of the headphones so in addition to being comfortable they're also invisible to anyone that's looking at you. so like someone who's wearing a fitbit or an apple watch or whatever kind of wearable it's people see it as a watch they don't see it as a an accelerometer with an electrocardiogram on your wrist. Yeah. They see it as just a, another accessory. And, and that's what we were trying to go for with Antep.
0: It looks like, I mean, it looks like a, a beautifully designed pair of headphones. Who does your design? Shout out to
1: our VP of product, who Jamie Alders. Yeah. He's former Bose, okay. uh, Bose product. And he he came in and he was like, look, if this is going to succeed, these need to be a pair of killer headphones first which they are. We have a, another advisor who leads all of our manufacturing work, is also former Bose. We have an audio and hardware engineer who come from Sure. So our pedigree it speaks to awesome headphones. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then we sneak our neurotechnology into it. But yeah, a big kudos to, to that team because I know obviously I'm biased, but I, I do think that they look pretty.
0: They're beautiful. Also, the the <laughs> weaving of the smart fabric is done in a way that is form follows function. It's iconic the way that it was done. When you see an ear cup from N10, or when you see an ear cup that just looks like that, you're like, oh, that must be a BCI. Now you guys like own that aesthetic. So I thought that that was like really, really well done the way that that weaving was done. I don't know if. It's all just out of necessity, or if there were also design flourishes in that, but it's just a very clean, iconic design.
1: No, it's, it's definitely both. And I think you're putting it rather elegantly. But we had an initial prototype that was using these research-grade sensors. Yeah. Like, this looks like it's going to suck your brain. Yeah. <laughs> um, and But that's it's what's going to give you the better signal. Right. And I remember arguments of, like, we should focus on better signal, or we should focus on form. And ultimately, we had to compromise and figure out could we de-risk the form opportunity to a degree that we feel reasonable of investing six years of development, all of these millions of dollars of investment to create this awesome product that is not just a product, but is a vehicle to all of our future BCI developments as
0: well. And you also probably had to think about okay, so there are limitations to the signal acquisition. So, what user experience can we enable with signal that isn't perfect? And you, right? And so what? And so what? What do the earphones do?
1: So, uh, like our philosophy is let's not reinvent the wheel. Uh, What we do is we look at what's been done well in laboratory controlled environments Mm. and see if we can replicate that performance. Because we know how to work with non-invasive sensors, because we know how to improve signal-to-noise ratio of the data quality. And we, we did this with virtual reality, and then we've done it subsequently after. But when it came to headphones, we did a lot of customer discovery of what we can do. Hmm. And when it comes to like understanding cognition, there are two main spectrums, right? There's this idea of valence, where arousal... At its peak is things like stress, and at its bottom are things like calm and everything in between that include fatigue, attention, et cetera. On the valence side, that's essentially measuring from happy to sad. Mm -hmm. And the valence side is a little bit more wishy-washy in terms of what's existing in the literature. There is some there, but it is much less unsure if you can reasonably decipher any of that when it comes to brain activity, at -hmm. least non-invasively. Emotion is an extremely nebulous concept that doesn't have any kind of consensus in terms of what it is, in terms of it's decomposed into a signal. Mm -hmm. Arousal, on the other hand, is much more understood. There are stress correlates like cortisol. So we decided to focus on the arousal spectrum and then specifically then do customer discovery on specific sections of the arousal spectrum. So we looked at things like stress, we looked at things like habits and addictions, we looked at attention and fatigue, and ultimately we decided to land on attention and use that as the flagship offering, at least initially. And since then, we've been able to hire a lead scientist three years ago now, Dr. Ali Youssefi, who at the time had just finished his stint at Harvard Medical and Mass General Hospital. Before that, he was at Colonel. Then he joined us. But he, he did some really great work at Harvard Medical where invasively he was looking at what are these attention correlates and was able to very creatively come up with a way of breaking that down because attention isn't actually a thing. There is no such thing as attention, it's not a specific biological function. It's the coming together of several cognitive modalities at the same point. Mm-hmm. So we had to come up with a creative way of estimating what we define as attention. And that's the innovation that powers the features of the end
0: 10 product. So it helps you monitor your own attention. It's interesting. I was just having lunch with my boys before this. And one of them was like, what's your podcast interview about? And I was just like, look, you know, when you're doing remote school, And you're wearing your headphones, sometimes you don't even realize it, but you're watching YouTube, right? Instead of like doing your work, then you don't even realize it. Well, the headphones actually sense that and remind you of where you had intended to spend your time and your attention. And they don't force you to, they just remind you because that's your goal. You know, you actually Mm -hmm. wanted to have, anyway, he's 10 years old and he was like, oh, I completely (laughs) understand it. And I want that. So it's a very, it's a very clear value proposition.
1: Yeah, I think like how many times have you been in front of your computer or on your phone and you, you know that you need to focus on something and you just can't? Or how many times have you found yourself following a rabbit hole of another kind of stimulus that you didn't intend to go down, like social media, for example? Yeah. So what our technology and this product is allowing us to do is understand and starting to quantify that kind of impact. Like, what does it cost me? that my attention is being taken by all of these different external distractors that I don't necessarily want to attend to? And also, how do I start to measure interventions? Meaning, how do I measure what gives me energy back? Is a five-minute breathing session the same as a walk around the block?
2: Hmm.
1: These are things that we can start to understand when you have an estimation of these, but we see this already. With physical wearables, there's a lot of talk of this idea of strain or the human battery. And this is very much that perspective, but from a cognitive perspective.
0: Very interesting. And also, you mentioned like a walk versus a breathing session. Those also might be different for different people. So you can start to become very personalized.
1: Just to tack on to that, one perspective that I have that I think is so interesting is this idea that there's no inherent feedback of the brain. It's not like our muscles where we can feel soreness when you're working out, or it's not like your heart rate that you can feel accelerate. Literally, you can feel your pulse. There isn't any physical sensation that truly allows us or makes it easier to understand what's going on up there. I think outside of retrospective reflection and people who are more experienced in meditation and, and practicing awareness, I think they can get a semblance of that, but still it's not a broken down understanding of, of what's really going on up there. Right. So this is a way to give ourselves another way to listen to. Her.
0: That's totally fascinating. You just made me think about a couple of things. Well, one thing is brain surgery is painless, right? We have no no neurons in our brains that actually provide us with a sense of pain. And so that's why you can do brain surgery and it's not painful. I wonder if that's wrapped up in this concept of the brain just being inaccessible to sensation, in general, I don't know, just a random thought.
1: I'm not a neuroscientist, but from the perspective of what I know, there are no pain receptors in your brain. Right. So there is no feeling how we do have in the rest of our body. Yeah. Uh, and it, it, it goes even beyond that, because like, when you work out your brain, it's only until after the effects. It's, it's very similar, to actually, to how I think people experience burnout. People don't really experience burnout until it's a little bit too late. And that's when it's already the worst part of mitigating. Mm-hmm. Like the remediation is much easier before you get to that state than when you're already at that state. Mm-hmm. And I think that's how I feel about how people understanding what's going on in your brain. And That's what we're trying to help solve with the tools that we're equipping with this product.
0: That's really cool. So it sounds like your tools are very much about empowering users and you've made a clear effort to, put that front and center because, I mean, let's face it, like when you're talking about reading people's thoughts and collecting data on their brain activity, it opens up a huge, you know, <laughs> a, a, a hornet's nest of, of ethical implications. But I know that you think about that really <laughs> carefully. So tell me how uh, Neurable thinks about that.
1: Yeah, so I don't know of any other neurotech company that has done this, but mine has publicly stated that we will not sell the user's data. That's not in our ethos. Actually, you were asking about customer discovery. My company, before we decided to focus on performance and helping people feel better about how they work, we looked at consumer research. Mm -hmm. An advisor that we have asked me, Adam, what is the market that's going to pay you the most for your technology? I was like, easy, user research. CPG companies who spend millions and millions of dollars in advertising, there is the full Wishy washy space of neuromarketing, like that's a no brainer. So, I spoke with a lot of companies that do this. I figured out what it would take to build a business around this. I was offered six figure deals from very large companies in order to pursue this. And I can tell you, as a very emerging technology that has very little revenue. Turning down those large checks is very hard, but the reason why we did it was that it was antithetical to what we were trying to achieve. It was not the, the kind of company that we were trying to build and it wasn't the best means in terms of how we want to build this future. My co-founder, Ramsey, he has this phrase, creating a world without limitation. And this all stems from his very young experience of his uncle losing both of his legs in a trucking accident. Mm. So Ramsey's had dedicated a lot of his early career working on prosthetics. He was an electrical engineer by his undergraduate education, but he realized that if he was really going to affect change, he had to target the brain. I think it was that grounding vision that helped us make the hard decision of, do we start with this lucrative route or do we say no and continue the campaign towards creating this world without limitations?
0: That's really cool. The feedback loop that you have it's notification based right so you're wearing this thing and you set up a well walk us through the interaction you set you set up an interaction and then when you deviate from your target attention levels you get a notification is that how it works
1: so it works in a couple ways okay so i think the best way to start off is imagine a shopping receipt where distraction that occurs that we understand because all of this is metadata that exists in our pc or that we're able to pick up with other sensors, whether it's the microphone, the gyroscope, et cetera, accelerometer, whatever. We essentially create this shopping receipt of what is taking your attention away, not just what, but by how much. And then also we are measuring what is providing you back uh, attention, what's helping contribute or prolong your target attention levels. Mm -hmm. And that's in just this measurement capacity. So there's that kind of concept but then what you're referring to is this cueing feature which is when people deviate from their target focus state how do we gently cue them intentionally what you really want to avoid is trying to take someone who's distracted back to the work with another distraction yeah what you want to have is something that they agree to that they understand whether it's it's a gentle vocal statement or a, a stimulus that's auditory or visual How do you use that to bring someone back to what you're doing? I I think the best analogy that helps it uh, understand this and like really feel what this can change is like, how often have you ever read a book and you'll go through a page and you'll have read, I don't know how many paragraphs and you'll have just come back from a mind wander and we're like, wait a minute, I know I read this, like my eyes tracked it. I I digested these words, but I didn't digest what they meant. And that's the gentle cueing that we would be able to remediate with what we have. Yeah. That and then also being able to... So again, like we like to work within the existing behavioral paradigms that people have. So one of the most commonly used work aids are, are music. They listen to music or white noise. Mm-hmm. So how can we start to associate specific tracks or types of music to different types of day and the relevant protections that they afford you to external distractions. What songs or types of music is making me more resilient? What types of music is helping prolong the time that I can be productive? Those are the types of things that we're unlocking and building into this product that we're shipping next year.
0: And not only unlocking, but if you could sense, let's say when somebody achieves a a flow state, they may have achieved Mm -hmm. it, and it may have nothing to do with the music that they're listening to, that they achieved it, but the music is now a cue for the reminder of that place. And so it doesn't really matter whether the music caused the flow state or had anything to do with it, just the fact that it was concurrent and a person was taking that sensation into their brain in that moment, you, know, you may be able to like induce some memory or, or recreation of that state later with the same auditory cues.
1: Yeah, I think what you're very intelligently intuiting is that once you have a measure of a cognizant, because there is no measure of attention, we have to create one ourselves. Yeah. Once you have this, it unlocks so much potential understanding because it's, again, it's a way to reflect on ourselves in a way that we haven't been able to before. Mm-hmm. I think it's one of the most powerful ways that people use wearables. I was speaking to uh, someone who was using WHOOP, which is an awesome wearable that just raised $200 million from SoftBank uh, a couple days ago, one of the most powerful ways that people use it is they use it for cause and effect. They look at what decisions they make and how that reflects in the data. And they use that, and they can only do this because they know that the data is reliable to decide how to change their habits or how to change their goals. Mm. And it's not just on the cognitive analytics side. There's also, with the headset, this degree of interactions, Mm -hmm. this concept that while wearing these headphones, I don't want to get too confusing, but at the end of the day, what we're measuring is this noise that's coming from the brain. Noise is a tricky term because people refer to that as bad data. Mm -hmm. What I mean by noise, or maybe chatter is the better thing, is Mm -hmm. when one neuron speaks to another, and that happens billions of times over, creates these fluctuations in electrical activity. that permeate through the brain, into the skull, and then just barely into the scalp. From the scalp, if you have the right sensors, you can pick up those fluctuations in voltage activity. Mm -hmm. And then you can use that to start to identify patterns. And those are largely viewed through these different frequency bands, whether it's alpha, beta, theta, gamma, et cetera. And those frequency bands have known associations in the neuroscience, academia, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So our goal is how do we Use these fluctuations in brain activity many times over to inform and make these models to help generate estimations of things that we didn't have before, like attention.
0: Yeah. And so, how much of that vision is achievable with the hardware that's out there? Because the N10, what's really great is, I mean, it's pretty much a platform that you can then build apps on top of, either within mm-hmm. your company or outside. I don't know if you have plans for opening it up, but. Either way, like how far can you take the current hardware and what would you need to unlock like the next level of user experience from a hardware perspective or from a sensing perspective? So let's
1: answer those two questions separately, because there's a lot that we can do right now. And I already work with a number of companies in terms of how do we empower different applications with what we have. So one of the keywords that come up all the time is this concept of closed-loop feedback. Mm -hmm. Because we finally have information that's coming from the brain, how can we use that to make other kinds of applications better? Whether it's either make like a musical experience more enjoyable. There are existing applications and products out there that help us be more productive or Mm -hmm. listen to music or be in the zone, et cetera. Mm -hmm. How do we plug it in this input from the brain to allow those to go 100 times better? Right. I had this really early, there's an in person meeting with this really innovative virtual reality agency called Steel Wool Studios. These were three technical directors who came out of Pixar. And I was so immersed in interaction and had only known that and been thinking about that. This is back in 2016, Mm -hmm. late late 2016, or maybe early 2017. And I was talking with these guys, and they're like, you know what would be awesome? And these guys are coming from Pixar, so they're always thinking about what is the emotional connection you can make with the medium and the, the, the consumer.
2: Yeah.
1: How can I make it so that the art that we develop understands us? And that's what you can start to have when you start to move behind things like heart rate, I mean, even heart rate's good, but like move things that are more physiology oriented. when you start to have these cognition, elements, then you can create these new types of experiences. And to answer your second question of like, what's missing to get to that future forward reality where an avatar knows how I'm feeling emotionally or I'm trying to use the force because that's the question that I get asked all the time. <laughs> It it requires higher resolution data and more quantities of it. So, on the neural side, we're definitely solving the quantity perspective. Mm -hmm. We know that we're getting good enough data, and now because it's the brain, it's very hard to get data from. We're creating a way to make that data collection much easier. So that's part of the puzzle. The other part of the puzzle is we'll always need better sensors. We'll probably need some kind of invasive to get to that future far reality. People love to ask me about uh, the television show Sword Art Online, FAO, Mm -hmm. where they have the nerve gear that allows you to do like full dive, which is basically matrix level immersion. Yeah. That can't be done non invasively. That requires neuronal level resolution or near that in order to achieve it. And that's not something that we're working on. What we're working on is what we call human technology. How do we work with what we have already to help us feel better about what we're doing? I had this really amazing opportunity to present and discuss at a think tank as part of the General Assembly at the United Nations. And this was a think tank group that they pulled together to discuss what is the future of thought and what is the future of thought technology. And one of the main takeaways that I had from it is, A pivotal role that my company, Neurable, can play is we can protect against what is trying to steal our attention, our cognitive resources, because it's happening all the time. I was just having a conversation with a professor at Harvard about salience of stimuli in our environment. Everything is a stimulus, whether we perceive it or not. The light that's around us, the sound that's around us, et cetera. These are all things that are entering our, our sensory systems. And we're choosing what to process and what to attend to. That's largely the the role of attention. But what happens is, imagine if we had a heat map of all of the stimuli in our environment. I would bet a lot of money that if we were to look at our phone in this heat map world, our phone would be glowing red hot, screaming, look at me, play with me. I am the biggest source of distraction. Because I'm so meaningful and so there's such a chemical relationship that exists with what's going on there Yeah. that what I want to help build is a system that allows us to be able to pull away. And the first step of, in pulling away, and this is very commonly known in addiction studies, is awareness. First, just understanding what is the habit that I have? Why am I engaging with it? And then when you start to have that measured awareness, then you can start to plan better and better interventions. And ultimately, I think, use technology to essentially solve the problem that we have with technology.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's really fascinating. And so you also have some interactions possible too, right? You can actually, because you're capturing signals on the scalp, you can even sense certain expressions or movements of the the face. Is that right?
1: Yeah, it's not even just the sensors on the scalp. Uh, a lot of the sensors that we put around the ear cup are intentionally put forward oh. because we want to be able to capture a lot of facial activity. Facial activity is very rich. It also happens to destroy brain activity.
0: <laughs> destroy brain activity? Oh, because it's stronger? Because it's,
1: it's stronger and it's, it's often present. Right. So what we've had to do is create a lot of innovation in terms of how do we identify that facial activity and remove it from the brain activity so that we have this pure brain data. But at durable, like I like to do with all of my characters, we like to recycle. So it's not just that we take this facial activity and throw it away. We actually end up reusing it and turning it into a feature. And, and this comes down to this idea of microexpressions, that there are many different types of facial expressions that you can control intentionally that are invisible to the people around you. And those are very detectable with our signal processing. Hmm. So what we can do is very reliably, very quickly provide people hands-free control of their devices right now. This isn't 10 years. This is like how we use this demo right now is we manipulate our presentations using a slight pressure on the job. Yeah. And the cool thing is it's not activating when we're talking or chewing or any kind of non-intentional activation. So it only happens when we want it to happen. And that is, I think, a, a killer interaction, especially when we get to augmented reality.
0: Yeah, actually, Ramsey's used that. I was on a panel with him at AWE and uh, he, of, of course, he like, showed his slides and then unveiled at the end that he had been controlling yes. with, his, with his face. That was really cool. OK, so I have <laughs> to ask you, so as somebody who is very much in a futuristic space, I'm sure you're thinking about the long term consequences and and the long term Evolution of BCI. Where do you think brain-computer interfaces are going to be in 2040? Like, paint us a picture.
1: I think it's a it's a really difficult question. So I'll caveat with that, because just just look at how much has changed in the past 10 years and how different that level of technological evolution was to the past 100 years.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: So the next 40 years are, to some extent, unfathomable. But I'm I'm happy to play. The, the
0: sci-fi next, game. next 20 years, next 20 years. I mean, just forward thinking, Okay, right? okay, okay. Uh,
1: I truly believe that there will be an integration with brain sensors. Whether it's Neurable or another company, I truly believe that we will take advantage of EEG and other neural modalities. So that includes f that includes invasive BCIs, all of these different kinds of sensing modalities to better understand the brain and use that to enhance our Understanding of ourselves, but also interaction with technology. So we have this spectrum of innovation where on one side, it's very passive and on the other side, it's very active. And that also can be distilled by this concept of by with for where we most commonly understand technology that's operated by us. I choose to do whatever I do on my smartphone. Uh, My smartphone is operated by me. Mm -hmm. There is already technology that works. With us, like suggestions, when you're typing, Google knows that I've searched what's the best food in my city. So whenever I type in what is the best food, I already popped
2: up. Mm-hmm.
1: That's an example of technology that works with us. We're giving it some kind of input, and it is doing some amount of guessing to allow for a greater outcome. But then very soon we'll have technology that works for us. So that's technology that has a level of understanding. And we have examples of this. Like I think YouTube search algorithms, or to some extent, targeted ads for better or worse, are technologies that are trying to work with our intent in mind. The positive applications of this is I walk into my home, my home knows that i'm tired so it's shifting the light to the the correct amount that i need in order to eventually go back to sleep in the next couple of hours Mm -hmm. or if i'm in an immersive storytelling situation i'm in an immersive experience the avatar is empathetic to what's going on in my head and is reacting in that way Actually, there's this really cool concept that we ultimately didn't pursue because it was difficult, and we needed to focus on one thing at a time. At this point, it's a class of event-related potentials, which are neural responses. It's what we use to do hands-free control.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: We had this ability; we could do event detection. Meaning, imagine in a an immersive in a film or in an immersive experience, the antagonist takes a knife and puts it behind his back. If you were able to capture that the person put the knife behind his back, the story would go one way. If you miss that, the story would go another way mm. in order to give you that kind of choose your own adventure on steroids.
0: <laughs> without, any, without any interaction. Yeah, or, or right. explicit interaction. That's really cool. So uh, how do we engage Neurable?
1: One of the best places is our Discord. We have an extremely large community that is interacting with members of our team every day. So asking anything from like, how do I help manage my burnout to what is the latest signal processing technique for this kind of application? Mm -hmm. So that's the best way to like directly get involved. But then also our, our social media, we put out a lot of events Actually, in a couple of weeks, we'll be hosting an event. Myself, Ramsey's, and uh, one of our research scientists, So You Want a BCI, uh, one of the most common questions we get is, how do I break into neurotechnology? Mm. And uh, that'll just be an open conversation with the three of us talking about our recommendations and perspectives on how to best get involved. And then, I mean, I'm open, I'm available, I'm on LinkedIn. I love engaging with people in my community, people who want to learn more. So if you ever want to chat with me, send me a LinkedIn message and I'm
0: happy to connect further. Thank you, Adam. You know, um, one of the things I've noticed is you guys are really, really open and really a part of promoting this community and almost like forming a community community around BCI. So everyone's really lucky to have a company like Nurable that, that has a strong vision that respects privacy and autonomy, but is also believer in this technology because you know it's it's a hard needle to thread and you're doing it and you're doing it in a very public way. And so it's really wonderful. So thank you for no, that. David, you. we're
1: fortunate to have you asking the meaningful and not just um, superficial question. I, I mean, like I say this to flatter you, obviously, but I do truly mean it that so often I think do people get caught up in what's exciting or what's going to capture someone's attention in an unfair way that it's, it's harder to ask what is truly meaningful and think about and be empathetic to the different kinds of situations that all of these various people that you've ever interviewed have gone through. So it's definitely my, my hat off to you.
0: Thank you so much. Thanks for the time and talk to you soon.
1: My pleasure, David. Ciao.
0: Take care. Thank you for listening. More information about this show is available at podcast.daveburnbaum.com. Beats by Illy MC. Copyright 2021.